Our final speaker for the evening, Harav Moshe Tarian. I want to start with a story. I know you've heard a lot of stories tonight. I want to tell my own story, and you'll see why in a moment. Rabbi Wolf spoke before about the ability to understand the other, fully, fully identify with the lady at the wedding who may not have been as intellectually sophisticated as he was. My little children, as Rabbi Freeman mentioned, waiting for his own line in front of the water fountain. A few years ago, Rebbe invited the special needs boys from our Darkano program into his office for their farewell meeting with him. Every Talmud in Yeshiva gets a farewell meeting. And he opened the floor for questions. And one of the special needs boys asked Rebbe, what's the difference between Halacha and Minhag? How is the Gadol Hador going to explain the difference between Halacha and Minhag to our Darkein or Talmidim in the Yeshiva. So for Rebbe, sports was always very important. It highlighted teamwork, discipline, hard work. And he started to say, who likes baseball? And everyone raised their hand. I like baseball. Who likes football? An equal amount of boys like football. And he started to explain how every football field is the exact same dimensions, American football. 100 yards, certain amount of distance, end-to-end, all the same. Baseball stadiums, all different. Some have the flagpole, the end of the home run area, a little closer to the right, a little closer to the left. Longer distances, shorter distances. And you can feel the enthusiasm in the room as the Godelador explained the difference between baseball fields and football fields. At which point, as they were fully, fully engaged in the difference between baseball and football, Rev. Lichtenstein said, Halacha is like a football field. It's the same no matter where you are. Minhag is like a baseball field. Depends upon which town you happen to be in. You've heard dozens, if not maybe hundreds of stories tonight. And as I walk through the halls, halls of tears, halls of pride, I was asking myself the following question today. Why do people tell so many reverend stories? We tell stories about everyone, but somehow to me at least it feels that the dosage of stories, as was evident tonight, which we retell about our Rebbe is so much disproportionate to the stories we tell in our lives about everyone else we know. Part of it is because we all knew we were living a legend. Very often we look back in our lives and we realize those were legendary moments. How often do we realize it in real time? That is how large his persona was. We knew we stood in the presence of greatness. We knew we were part of history. We knew there actually was a Talmud, a friend of mine in the 80s, who would walk around with Rabbi Lichtenstein literally with a notepad, the first stalker, Rabbi Carroll, before Rabbi Carroll began to stalk, and literally record every single wave, movement, body gesture, because he was a historian recording history. 
But it's more than that. If someone asks you to describe a girl who you want to set up for a ship, you're not going to tell a story. You'll say she has this quality, that quality. This. Someone asks you for a resume, for someone for a job, you'll describe the person. Somehow, he was indescribable. So we just abdicate and tell stories. We just give up. We can't. Everything will be partial. Everything will be incomplete. So we just take a pass. And let me tell you a story. (laughs) That's all we can do. A glimpse. For two reasons. Number one, because every trait... He lives so deeply. Every trait. So how can I describe a level that I can only dream of achieving? So I'll tell a story. Maybe, maybe, maybe that story will try to capture it. We delude ourselves into hoping the story will capture it, but well, sure. But it's not just the depth of how passionate and driven and committed and disciplined, everything you've heard tonight, kind and gentle and aristocracy and regal and scholastic and erudite but it's also the way he just combined all of them. I answered Benny Lehman, who's here tonight, one of the mashkichim in the yeshiva, I just needed help today. He helps boys. I said, help me, how would you describe him? So Benny, for the last six or seven hours, I really agreed with you, and now I feel that that's insufficient. For Benny described him as a juggler. He kept so many balls in the air. Imagine a juggler who juggles 25 bulls. I don't mean responsibilities and tasks, but traits. And and I really was excited about that. And then I realized there weren't separate bulls. That assumes they're separate bulls, and you just, they were so integrated. I always quote my Rebbe, Rebbe Amitav Zechot Zadik Levracha. I hardly ever quote Rebbe Lechtenstein. Because you can't. It's not a story or an idea or a chiddush or a trait. He built us from the ground level to the top floor. Every trait you'd want in the moral theater, every trait you'd want in Avodas, every trait you'd want in Benalda, every way you'd want. Lambdos in life. I was amazed to see how the ideas and the structures he built for us in the classroom about Atosis and Avodazara simply overlaid to life. There's one word I never heard him say. I want to tell you about a word I never heard with Lachinsin tell me. As you described tonight, everyone so beautifully, he understood that there was value in reading the broader and the best and brightest that is produced that he forayed courageously into literature and into... I never heard him use the following word, which everyone uses when they quote Shakespeare or Wordsworth or Milton. He never, ever used this word. He never said the word lahavdil. Never. Do you ever remember him saying it? He was so authentic that to say the word lahavdil would mean it's a separate ball, it's a separate part, and it can't be, it can't be introduced. Because it was all part of his Avodah Hashem. So here I am, Rebbe, I still don't have it. I just know what it is like. I know it's like the Rebbe Shalom. Kivayachal. We have to say that word, Kivayachal. Who's Yotzer or Ravari Choshech Osa Shalom Ravari Zakol. We take ideas 
experiences, elements that are different, that human beings can combine, and combine them. Fire and water. And now it says God was. People talk about him as an open-minded person, progressive, liberal, taking new stances. As some of the rabbi mentioned before, he's extremely, extremely conservative in his psaac. He's not someone you wanted to consult if you wanted a kula. Unless it was a very, very severe and unique case. He knew how to be makil in cases of human need and human crisis. And how could you be open-minded and closed-minded together? How could you be conservative and liberal? He was sophisticated, the most sophisticated person. I used to come home from shul Friday night. After an hour and a half minimum, it's Friday night, Sichot, my wife would ask me, what did Rav speak about tonight for an hour and a half? He said, tonight he said that Moshe was a good person. <laughs> my wife would ask me, it took him an hour, not really, an hour and a half to tell you Moshe was a good person? It was like a diamond. He spun it on its axis. What does it mean to be good? And what's he good to God and to people and to history and two types of history and two types of good to people and goodness and kindness? And the people that are that sophisticated generally are prone to moral relativism, to everything being the swirl, the no black and whites. He had moral courage. He had a clear sense of right and wrong and he called us out. Right, Wolf mentioned before his courageous stance with the airliner. I lived through his courageous stance in the Lebanon War in the Shabra Shatia, where he was one of the lone voices who courageously took unpopular views and claimed this was a... And then once again in 1995, after the Robin assassination, one of the first knowledges came from our people, and this is something we have to be embarrassed about and conduct. How can sophistication, which generally recognizes differences and acknowledges other opinion, how can that reside so coherently with stark and clear moral courage? You sat in his shear? The entire world outside is folded into that tosfos. The world dissipated. Nothing mattered. It was a journey to the far reaches of the universe because where would you rather be than hearing an eloquent, majestic shear that touched every single synapse of Shas? So Torah-centric. But yet facile and agile in addressing both contemporary issues of our society, state, secular, as well as just reading about his world and teaching us to love our world. But as Rebecca said, and I've been struggling, Rebecca, Rebecca's listening, I was struggling the whole week until you said it. What was his trait? What was the trait? I wasn't sure. Was it humility or service? Service or humility? Was it the humility that created service? That's the humility, Rebecca. You, you convinced all of us. There was a sense of service, of Avodas Hashem as an Eved Lifnei Rabbo. As he told us once, religion means having the shoulders to bear the weight of religion without being crushed by it. To bear the weight of religion. Religion is a weight and you carry it. And I want to talk about just two things that to me I'll never forget. These are not stories. These are echoes and images. He taught us to scream. What does it mean to scream? Who can forget his Birch HaSatara? Literally piercing the heavens. Who can forget his Orzarua Latzadik? Launching Yom Kippur at the top of his lungs. Who can forget that the end of a tightness, our bodies weak and tired, our throats parched, and all of a sudden you walk into the base matters, Dear Shulas Hashem Behimatzel, listening to his Haftarah. 
Who can forget his Yud Gimomidos? Who can forget his Tehillim when his father was ill? Why was that so important to us? Because in the modern world, it's not appropriate. It's not proper manners to scream. It's aggressive. It's not sensitive to other people. You talk in a whisper. You're more genteel. You're more refined. Who screams? We're not screamers. We're not shouters. It's uncivilized. There was no one more civilized than Rav Lichtenstein, no one more regal. He walked into a room, as Rabbi Schreiber described, and you knew a prince had walked into the room. And everyone moved away out of fear, respect, and awe. But when you're standing in front of a Kachbarfu, you scream. And all that respect and all that, so to speak, dignity, the David Mecharker Bechalos. You scream because you don't let fine manners and good graces and decorum, you're standing in front of the Rabbana Shalom who hold nothing back. And who can forget not just how he taught us to, to scream, but how he taught us to dance. Who can forget him for if he was hugging the Torah or if the Torah was hugging him when Simcha's Torah. Or how he danced from the moment the Chassan Kala came into the circle in his pride till the moment the dancing ended. The moment to the moment. The most dignified person taught us how to be explicit and open with our firm kite. Not exhibitionist, not preening, not grandstanding, but he taught us that an Evan Hashem doesn't worry about his dignity, what people will say about mannerisms, but raw, pure, Unmitigated, ever lefnei rabba, and that fed his humility, his midos, his kindness, and everything that was said tonight. So I'll end with a story he told us and a question that I don't know the answer to, and maybe people can help us with. He once told us that when you have a moral quandary or question, don't ask yourself what to do in theory in abstract terms. Because in the swirl of the moment, under pressure, your conviction can melt. Ask yourself, what would someone whom you respect, how would he respond? Have a moral example. Make it real and compelling. Make it vivid, not abstract and theoretical. Yosef sees his father's image, Yosef's a tzaddik, but under the pressure, he needs a moral model. We asked Rebbe, who was your moral model? And he told us it was Ravaran Soloveitchik, whose morality, those who knew him, was stunning. And at that moment, it became obvious to everyone in that room that he had just given us the keys to leading morally, religiously rich lifestyles, because he then became that person who we think about every moment, every moment we face an issue or a challenge. So he set that moral example. I don't know why, and this is my question. I really honestly do not know why. In honor of his authenticity, it would be false and fraudulent for me to fake an answer. I don't know why he became our father so deeply, but we all feel like we lost our father. We had a father. We had two fathers. Those of us who learned here in Yeshiva, aside from Abbas, there are biological fathers. And they each introduced us to the Rabboni Shalom. Ravami Tal brought that loving grandfather, the loving father into the base matters. And Rav Lusenstein brought the Melach Malchai Amlachim Akarish Baruch into the base of Medrash. And it was to see them integrated. And I don't know how and why he became our father, but he did. 
And he also, he didn't inspire people. There are many sources of inspiration. As everyone said tonight, he challenged us. He challenged us. His word was challenge and demand and expectation and duty. He changed our vocabulary. Not by his tongue and not by his immense and formidable vocabulary, by his passionate, authentic, unflinching behavior. And if my, we are able to live a challenged life, not to give ourselves passes, not to take easy solutions, but to demonstrate some of that challenged life and be capable, as Rabbi Schreiber said, of a little bit more than we were capable before, then hopefully we'll be as close for his it, it would be impossible at this point to summarize what we've heard this evening. We've mourned together. We've been inspired together. We've heard many, many stories. And our minds are full of visions of Ravar and teaching and carrying Svarim and doing the things we remember him doing. But I want to leave you with a different vision. It's the vision I've had in my mind the last few months. The Mishnah Navo says, Minayin shafilu echad sheyoshev va'osek b'Torah, she'akadosh baruch hu kovea lo sachar, she'nemar yeshev badad yidom ki natal alav. How do you know that even one person who learns Torah by himself gets rewarded? Pasuk in, in Eicha says, he sits alone and is silent, for he has taken it upon himself. All the years... Ravar never was able to learn by himself in the base Medrash because people always came to ask him questions. The last few months, I have the vision in my mind of Ravar sitting there. People stopped asking him questions. It was hard for him. He would shuffle in. Yeshev badad v'yidom ki Till the last minute, he was carrying the load of Torah. He needed to show up to the base Medrash because that was his home and somehow he carried the burden of Torah. And I'll remember all the visions, but I'll remember the last few months where he struggled to sit in his seat in the base medrash, and he sat by himself, badad v'yidom ki because it was his obligation to sit in the base medrash and learn. And finally, I'm not articulate enough, I'm not creative enough to think of closing words for tonight, so I'll quote Rav Aaron, words that he said about the Rav, but words that certainly apply to us. He said as follows, we who come after cannot retrospectively imagine the past half century without him. Prospectively, as dwarves on a giant's shoulders, we feel charged to persist, impelled by his spirit in the ample, in the implementation of his goals, to learn, to teach, to realize. To the best of our abilities, we are called and we are pledged to continue in the Beit HaMidrash and in the, compu- and in the community, his multifaceted enterprise, Lahagdil Torah Ulaha Adira. Yehi Zichro Baruch.